On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone, where our guest this hour is Noel Paul Stuckey, better known as the Paul of legendary 1960s folk trio Peter, Paul, and Mary. Today, Noel chats with Amy Wright about his lifelong journey as a musician. You'll find out where Noel grew up, how he got introduced to the Greenwich Village folk scene, how Peter, Paul, and Mary formed, and even how he got the name Paul. They also chat about his upcoming album, Faz, Now and Then, and how the songs on the record reflect how the interpretive nature of jazz has impacted his creative impulses over these past 60 years. There's obviously a lot of ground to cover and little time to do it, so let's get to it. Please join us in welcoming to Insights, Noel Paul Stuckey. Hey, how are you? Good, I'm just trying to sort some things out here. There you are. Good. Look at you, and you've got your fancy guitar. Uh, my fancy guitar? Yeah, what kind of guitar is that? I can't see the top of the, the headstock there. Yeah, it's a, a headstock. You must be a guitar player yourself. Then. <laughs> I knew uh, you would like that. My husband will like that, too. He's a, he's a real guitar player. I'm more uh, of a fiddle player, and I play at guitar, but I'm trying. What a nice idea to have a fiddle around the house. Um, yeah, it's a David LaPlante. Um, I had an unusual request several years ago. Oh, you are recording. A couple of, a couple of years ago, maybe like a decade. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Over a decade, maybe 20 years ago, I was on the road still with Peter and Mary a lot. And I, um, I said... And then when I would go on vacation with the family, I wouldn't want to lug the guitar around, and yet I wanted access to a guitar. So I asked David if he would make me a suitcase guitar. So this, uh, he said, sure. And he made me a guitar that was about this long, solid body, nylon strings with a classical width neck, and an electric pickup that I could put headphones into and play. It was <laughs> sort of like a ukulele because the frets were so small. <laughs> but... Nonetheless, it served its purpose, and I maintained a relationship with David because he was so clever, and he built me a somewhat unusual 14-fret classical guitar because when Peter and I worked together, inevitably, uh, Peter would be playing open strings, and I would have to go second fret with a capo or fourth or fifth or whatever, and by the time I'd get through, I'd be playing up here anyway. I was running out of room. And like the album says, Faz, I was always looking for those chords that nobody else was playing. So I turned to David LaPlante and he, he has made me three of these and they're beauties. I just love them. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful guitar. And uh, where are you right now? Are you in Maine? Is that where you live now? And No, no, no. I'm, I'm on the coast. Well, I'm actually off the coast of California. Uh, oh, Okay. About uh, 12 miles inland from Ventura in a little town called Ojai that is 
just delightful for my wife and I. I mean, we moved to the country in 1970, well, I guess 74, rented and then just fell in love with the coast of Maine. So that we consider that to be our home. But wintertime, as you get to be our ages, starts to take its toll. And we found this delightful community on the West Coast that's just small enough to feel like you could sit on your front porch and watch the world go by and get to a store within a block and a half or the library or the post office or the whatever walkable so we're in, yeah we're we're pretty fortunate noel i think i'm coming out to live down the street from you guys <laughs> that I, weather's sounding a little bit nice right now <laughs> yeah that's right well where are you from where are you calling? well we're in memphis Tennessee. So Southern, you know, it's not t such a bad winter, but it still gets cold. And, and um, right now it's a little chilly so and rainy. So I think some good old Southern, I mean, California sun would be really, mm. really nice right now. But y'all don't have a Memphis accent. You know, I don't have much of a M Memphis accent. I don't know why, but... <laughs> oh, you were born and raised there? Yeah, yeah. Wow. You would think I, you think I would have one, but Memphis is kind of a river city. You, know, you get that Chicago, Memphis, New oh, Orleans yeah. thing, uh -huh. and so it's not as southern of an accent as you would get in, say, Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia. It's uh -huh. uh, it's a little watered down. Um, <laughs> but uh, so you have a new album out, Faz, now and then, and we're going to talk about that. But I'm fascinated by your whole life. And I wanted to go back a little bit because we're going to take some time and we're going to also hear, hear you play a few, few tunes here. Um, and um, so where, where did you grow up, Noel? I grew up in the country and I think that to a large extent contributed to my desire to get back to it in 1974. But I was, uh, until I was 12, I was brought up in a little town halfway between Baltimore and Washington called Dorsey and had a great group of friends, a forest out the back door, uh, you know, a, a horse that plowed the fields. And uh, I mean, not that we had that many fields. It was a small house. My family lived uh, modestly um, in uh, a place called Little Haven, the name of which still continues in our lives. You know, there's so few ways somehow when our parents pass away that we're able to uh, concretely connect with those memories. And this little place that we found in Ojai now, we've called Little Haven. Um, but it was a great, great childhood. And bicycles, oh my gosh. You know, you get a bicycle in the country and the world is your oyster. I mean, you could go anywhere as long as you were back by supper time. And, and that's how I was raised. Then I moved to a slightly suburban place, you know, Towson, Maryland for a while. But the big change in my life if you want me to keep on talking about Absolutely. my life. It's uh, all about you, Noel. That's why we're here. <laughs> evidently, yeah. Uh, is when I went to Birmingham, Michigan. Um, my dad got a promotion. And Birmingham was one of those suburbs uh, outside of the auto industry where moderate to affluent folks settled in and had a fantastic state-of-the-art high school with a, a great theater program, uh, a radio workshop class. Uh, so you would do radio shows and then they would actually get played over the air. I mean, it was 
pretty exciting as a teenager to be that involved with the arts and communication. And I made movies there with my classmates. I started a rock and roll group called the Birds of Paradise. I went from there to Michigan, three years at Michigan State, and really kind of ignored my studies because I was having so much fun making music and being masters of ceremonies at various events. Then when my dad got a further promotion to Pennsylvania, uh, I went there, lived for about a year and a half working in a camera shop with some wonderful people. And I'd always been interested in photography and filming or whatever. And then went to New York and just by chance got a job working for a photographic chemical company in New York as a product manager. I had my first flight on a 747 to L.A. It was just... How exciting. Oh, I was so heady at the age of 20, 21, 22. Now, were you in college still or were you out and just working? No, I dropped out after I had enough credits to enter my junior year at the end of my junior year. So I wasn't doing all that well. Did did you participate in any kind of theater or music when you were actually in college or did that mostly happen outside of college? I was a solo performer in college. Um, I had, you know, a loyal group of listeners at the Delta Upsilon fraternity who supported me. And like I said, I did a lot of Master of Ceremonies work. I had a girlfriend who sang jazz really well and we performed together. So I was not a stranger to performing. So then you end up in, uh, you're in New York. Um, When did you actually meet Peter Yarrow and Mary Travers? When was that? Well, I was working, while I was working for the photographic company, <laughs> the <laughs> chemical company, one of uh, several of the people in the company played chess. And they said, come on down to the village. The village? What's the village? And so living on East 97th Street, I took the subway down and started playing chess. And one night I went in and instead of the table where we usually played chess, there was some construction going on. I said, what are you doing? He said, we're building a stage. We're going to have entertainment here. And I said, oh, well, what do you have to do to qualify? And he said, "Uh, come down and audition. So in my three-piece Brooks Brothers suit and a lot of the repertoire from high school and college, including a rock and roll version of the Mickey Mouse theme song, I auditioned. And I guess it was so weird that even in an era of open-toed sandals and beatniks, they felt that this guy was weird enough to hire. So I started working in the village at coffee houses, and that's where I met Mary. She had an apartment there, uh, took me to the Italian fair, introduced me really to the culture of the village. And then as entertainment became more and more a uh, allure, or an attraction for people who were visiting New York City, in, especially in the village. Albert Grossman, who had managed Joan Baez, uh, who was managing Odetta, and had a tenor uh, folk singer by the name of Peter Yarrow under his wing, came to visit me at the Gaslight, asked me if I'd like to join a group. The response, which indicated how, disappointment, how disappointed I was that he wasn't asking me if he could manage me, and uh, and yet, a couple of weeks later, 
maybe not so much coincidence, Mary gave me a phone call and said, uh, there's this guy over here with a guitar. Can we come over and sing? Well, I knew Mary well enough to say sure. And by the time we finished singing, Mary had a little lamb. Uh, that first, you know, 15 minutes in my apartment, we knew that there was something special going on. It's, you know, when you sing, I, I think that's why opera singers in general have a difficult time melding into a group because they sing with authority. <laughs> but, the, but the three of us sang with empathy. And because of that, the voices had a kind of, I don't know, they were just compatible. Did you feel like you had immediate chemistry? Did that just everything kind of meld immediately? Well, insofar as the music represented the chemistry, for sure. Personality-wise, we were very different and still are. Uh, I mean, Mary passed away in 2009, but believe me, she was, <laughs> she was different. She was her own woman, and we learned a lot about feminine rights and attitudes and the proper place in society, the honorable place in society for them uh, through Mary. Uh, Peter was intellectual, went to Cornell, graduated. Uh, I didn't. Uh, taught folk music, had a lexicon, a huge background uh, in, in folk music. And I was just the wild rock and roll kid on the block. So there wasn't a com immediate compatibility personality-wise, but the music was the common ground. And we just sensed that when we either got on stage or were singing together, uh, everything melted away except the desire to bring the meaning of the tune and the beauty of the tune to a listening public. Were you all songwriters? Uh, Mary was more of a poet. And she wrote a couple of liner notes for albums. Uh, there were a couple of tunes uh, that I even constructed a, a kind of a, a musical background while she read poetry on stage during our concerts. But Peter and I would say, I would say we're the major songwriters, yeah. Aside from that, you got to understand, Amy, there's a, a whole history of folk music that's available. And uh, so we borrowed on that very heavily in the beginning. I'd say 50% of our repertoire was traditional music. Sure. And what was that folk movement like in Greenwich Village? I think folk was uh, a chance for people to hear people, uh, to hear entertainers committed to the lyric. You know, uh, even today, uh, there is a split, uh, not conscious split, but I think that there's a differentiation between uh, singers who are singing for entertainment value and singers who are singing to deliver a message. Now, sometimes the message is, hey, it's entertaining. Let's have <laughs> fun. Uh, matter of fact, I've got one of those songs on the new album called Fun Police. But the fact that folk music offered stories instead of uh, long exaggerated choruses to dance to I think was mostly attractive to a listening crowd. And you didn't come to Greenwich Village to hear the music unless you came to hear the music. Um, these, there were serious listeners and serious performers. Do you think that folk music specifically spoke to the era of social change that was going on in the 60s and so people were maybe more in tune with the lyrics than just listening to, so 
the melody of a song? Absolutely, that factored into it. But but the you have to say that we learned the mentors uh, like Pete Seeker and Josh White and Cisco Houston and uh, I mean, and you know further back in that in traditional music. I mean these. These stories were tales of, you know, bravery, of, of treachery. Uh, they were compelling, and they required listening. Uh, you know, you couldn't uh, pick up the tune a couple of bars later and figure out why, why the young man was having trouble getting back on board the good ship uh, after the captain had told him that if he went to the foreign ship and drilled holes in the side and sunk it, he would not leave him in the lowland sea. I mean. These were, these were tales that were compelling, and they spilled over then into contemporary writing. And to your point, then along came writers with a great sense of the now, like Dylan and Phil Oakes, and who brought that same kind of commentary and perspective uh, to contemporary circumstances. So your first album was just titled Peter, Paul, and Mary, which is how you guys are known. And... Um, how did that come about? You know, did you... <laughs> Personal I'm sure there's a good story there. <laughs> Personal confession time? Yeah, well, uh, we were tall and lanky, by and large. And so when Albert called us in, he said, look, I'll support Mary. He said, you guys contribute what you can from your solo work. Let's put this group together. And um, and when we sang the three or four tunes that we had worked up, uh, John Court, Albert Grossman's associate, said, you know, if nothing happens, you're going to happen. And Albert said, have you thought of a name for the group? And we thought, well, maybe, maybe the Willows. And then Albert astute as always, said, you know, if Noel changes his name to Paul, we could call the group Peter, Paul, and Mary, which had not only a kind of biblical suggestion to it, but there was a folk song that said, uh, I was born about 10,000 years ago. There's nothing in this world that I don't know. I saw Peter, Paul, and Moses playing ring around the roses, and I'll whip the guy that says it wasn't so. So the alliteration was already there. And I immediately went into defensive mode, you know, thinking of all the Hollywood stars who had changed their names to, to be more accessible. And I said, well, no, I, I'm not about to change my name. I'll take it on as a middle name. Little realizing that my middle name would take me on <laughs> and turn me inside. I was going to say, Noel, I think you took one for the team on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right, Amy. But it's worked out beautifully. I mean, I, I do retain, you know, a love and appreciation for all of those years with the trio. I mean, still with the trio, although Mary is ghosted and, uh, and Peter and I are only rarely performing now. But still, what a great legacy to come from. I mean, I feel like Peter, Paul and Mary were my parents, the cousins, the siblings I never had being an only child. Now, was it surprising when the album took off like it did and you almost had instant fame? In those days, some or either a singular disc jockey who got a fixation on a song from an album 
could turn that album into a reported uh, product. And Buck Herring on the West Coast in San Francisco fell in love with Lemon Tree. And between his playing it and the charts reporting it, other radio stations begin to say, well, what is Lemon Tree? And with that footing, I think Lemon Tree went to top 30. That was the first cut. But the album had some very, shall I say, reflective music of the folk movement. If I Had a Hammer was on it. And that became the second single and I think went top 10. So by that time, you know, the record company was already talking about, well, we, you know, let's get a next album in line. And the next album had Puff the Magic Dragon on it, which went to number two and still is, I would say, probably, arguably, next to the political tunes, uh, the best known tune that, well, and then there's I Dig Rock and Roll Music. I don't know. You know, we were very fortunate uh, to ride a crest of awareness I guess you would have to say, because it wasn't only happening in the village. People were finding out that folk music could comment on the life that they were leading right now. And that was very interesting to hear music that reflected on your decision making as a human being in 1960. You know, the very first 45 I had, Noel, was Puff the Magic Dragon. Uh, yeah. what, was that literally? Other, what was on the <laughs> other side? Do you remember? I'm trying to remember. I, oh, Blowing in the wind? No. no? The blowing in the wind wouldn't happen until the. No. Uh, it, but but I, I didn't get it till in the early 70s. Yeah. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. But that would, have, a, that would have been my first uh, 45, given to me by my parents. So. Uh, sweet. Well, it's a sweet story. And it went on to have many permutations. Peter did a beautiful job of delivering a lot of different facets. Uh, Jackie became a girl in one of the episodes. Um, the fact that Puff was always there for dreamers. And uh, yeah, it's right. it was really quite, really quite a remarkable tune. I do remember there was some controversy around Puff the Magic Dragon uh, that some people actually thought it was about drugs and it was really just what it was, which was coming of age. Were you kind of surprised at the controversy? Uh, yeah, we were taken aback. Um, <laughs> when, when Puff started to break in much the same spirit as Lemon Tree broke, you know, people started to pick up on it. Peter and I went to one of these little kiosks in a bus station that had those little metal stamps that you could put alphabet or, you know, little greetings around and it became part of a keychain. And we stamped out Puff is a monster. Uh, thanks for, you know, thanks Puff. For making Puff a monster, I think is what we said. Uh, we meant it in one direction, but the the only actual injury philosophically, I think, was when Puff the Magic Dragon was taken off the airwaves in Singapore because the government felt that it was commenting on drugs. That has always been a challenge to the artists, of course, is to deliver the truth of something um, in parable form. And when you do that, how can you ban it, really? Uh, because it's a question of interpretation. And goodness knows, there were a lot of people who were interpreting things for drugs in the, in the mid-60s to the mid-70s. So you guys also covered some Bob Dylan tunes. 
And oh, yeah. did, did you know Bob Dylan? And um, how did you pick those particular covers? When I was uh, when I was master of ceremonies at the Gaslight, Bobby passed through the first time, sounding a lot like Woody Guthrie and doing songs that were uh, reproduced uh, in that same mode. When he came back the second time and asked for a slot on the stage, uh, there was no question that I would give him time. But he sang a song that showed that he had a grasp of the folk idiom. He re he had rewritten a tune uh, called the Buffalo Skinner, <laughs> where the man gets paid in the old tune. The man gets paid in buffalo skins scratches the back of his head and asks the uh, his boss what he's supposed to do with that. He can't eat on that. And the boss says, just take it to the canteen and cash it in. Dylan comes back from playing a coffee house at a chess club in New Jersey. He sings the same song, but now the lyric is he gets paid in chess pieces at the end of his gig. And he says, how am I supposed to eat on chess pieces? And the boss says, take it to the bar. And he said, so I got a beer, gave him a queen and got two rooks in return. So <laughs> his, what I mean is he understood that the idiom had a flexibility and yet could communicate in a very ingenuous and personal way. So I... I remember saying to Albert, you got to come down and listen to Bobby. So Bobby, yes, I've known Bobby for a long time. Um, not that we have, you know, the traffic of stardom is, runs on separate roads. And though you will meet occasionally at an intersection, it's very difficult to stay parallel for a long time. Um, however, Bob songs, because he was managed by Albert Grossman, became... Uh, available to us. We heard uh, Blowing in the Wind on an acetate in Chicago when we were performing there and said, absolutely do it. A lot of people give us credit for bringing Dylan's name into popular uh, knowledge, but he would have arrived uh, <laughs> anyway. We, we just happened to be the ones, you know, who opened that particular door. Did you find the folk movement to be more collaborative than, say, some mm. other musical movements? Well, I wouldn't know other musical movements. Uh, I think jazz is pretty collaborative. Uh, folk certainly was. I mean, <laughs> although it had its dark underbelly, that is to say, folk certainly was because we would run to other people's performances to hear what they were doing, what they had written, or sometimes to hear our own songs done in a different form. Uh, the dark underbelly was sometimes artists felt protective of particular arrangements that they had of the tunes and they would, I don't know, play with their back to the microphone or <laughs> that was, but that was the, that was the exception. By and large, folk music uh, was not competitive, but rather complimentary. And John Denver, you guys knew John Denver because Leaving on a Jet Plane was another big hit. He actually wrote that, but did he write it for you or how did that come about? Uh, once again, coincidence and management played into it. Our musical director was Milt Oaken. Uh, John came to Milt's attention. Uh, I don't know how, but we had access to John Denver's repertoire early 
in John's career. And actually, Amy, Leaving on a Jet Plane was the only number one song that Peter, Paul, and Mary ever had. Everything was number two, number 10, number 30, 15. I mean, we did well, mind you. We had three albums in the top six uh, in the same week in Billboard or Cashbox. So, but that was an era where popular music moved more slowly in terms of its sales. Uh, the reporting was slower. Uh, I, I'm not sure any less accurate, but it just took time to get the numbers in. Um, so, yes, we knew. And then, of course, through Milt, we got to know John personally, and we did a television show with him, and he we did uh, concerts with him, got to know he and his wife Annie very well. And we shared a bass player. Because during our 10 years off for good behavior, it was uh, between 1970 and 1980, Dick Kness, the upright bass player for us, uh, formerly of Woody Herman Band, uh, played with John, even co-wrote a song. Um, and the one thing about folk music and, and jazz is they both have a tendency to use upright bass players. Now, I don't mean upstanding bass players. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, upright bass players, the bass viol, as opposed to an electric bass. Uh, and Dick was one of the masters of that. We loved, when, when you go hear a group, the next time you hear a, a singing group, if you're a fan of theirs, and you might hear them a second time do the same song, listen to what the bass player is playing. Because if it's a jazz bass player playing with a folk group, he'll play a totally different part dependent upon how he feels, what he thinks the mood of the evening is. And that kind of improvisation behind Peter and Mary and I was really welcome. And that was, that was the thing we loved about Dick's playing. Um, you were also associated in the 60s with, it was the Young Jesus Movement. Mm. And it was kind of the precursor for Christian rock. And did you know that that was precursor for Christian rock, or what was that movement? I think, I think following the disappointment, uh, the, you know, in the Vietnam War era, the, the hopefulness that was expressed in the love movement in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, was, uh, thwarted you know where where could you take that feeling where was where was that hope where was that righteousness and i personally um found a great uh surprising sense of relief in discovering that yeah there was <laughs> the possibility of a divine being though at the time I tended to use baby talk words to describe it. You know, it was God, it was him, it was Jesus, it was. And later in one's spiritual growth, you learn to discover that that is boxing in the divine. That is, in fact, limiting the scope of the divine's ability to move not only you, but to allow you to speak to other people. So love became ultimately the 
best form of expression. And that was a that was a gradual momentum that started, to your point, with the Jesus movement in uh, in the mid to late 60s, certainly for me. Uh, I do love the one expression, though, you know, that everybody uses that has hung on, despite how they feel about uh, contemporary Christianity, is when they describe someone coming to a moment in their lives, they call it a coming to Jesus. And I think that's, I think that's so interesting because it translates as facing yourself, facing your shortcomings and trusting that life has a larger purpose and that you can be a part of that. Um, contemporary Christianity uh, certainly went in deeply into evangelical movements and while some of the music still maintains its worshipful stance, uh, much of the music at the time that was kind of off-putting to me was trying to sell Jesus as an entity. Uh, however, I, I remember good friends being uh, just blown away by the quality of the music, and I still am. I mean, Randy Stonehill, uh, who has one of the tracks on the new album, is by Randy Stonehill. This is a brilliant guitarist, great songwriter. So to me, the criterion, and I know that's off the point at this point, but to me, the great criterion of Jesus music is how well does it translate and what is its intention? Is it, if it's to remind us of our inherent opportunity to become part of love, then I'm all for it. But if it throws up walls by virtue of labels, then I, I find it difficult to subscribe to. Well, it's interesting because you're associated with some very liberal causes, and I know that social justice has been a very important part of your life. And so how do you reconcile, say, your Christian faith with these liberal social causes? And I think you were kind of touching on it there, um, because Christianity did move more to that evangelical side. Um, but I just wanted to hear you explore that a little bit. That's a difficult uh, area to explore because it's a case-by-case -case issue and then it's a question of uh, discernment uh, and and labels really um, a lot of which you know I've tried to explain online uh, but I do feel <laughs> that there is a you know there is the selfish us and then there is the higher calling. And somewhere in between those two points, we're constantly attempting to be at one. So to the extent that, this, that the political world around us face, gives us challenges to overcome, we have to ask ourselves where on this, this line of evolution are we and what can we bring to this circumstance? Um, certainly, we all know that lying is, <laughs> I'd like to say its own worst enemy, but unfortunately, it drags all of us down with it. Uh, you know, untruth, uh, exaggeration, uh, uh, you know, for personal gain. 
so you know <laughs> constant reconciliation between your faith and the world around you is called for and you you know and when i say faith i i mean those of all faith uh and those of all determination you know to go into a quiet spot of meditation you know is sometimes the best alternative un, uh, to to confrontation but honestly amy i'm really concerned now uh, because to a large extent the compassionate liberal if you will is faced pretty much with a a situation that resembles Neville Chamberlain's visit to Nazi Germany prior to the Second World War. Uh, are, are we to be compassionate with those who lie? I don't believe so. Uh, how aggressive then should our response be? These are big, these are, these are huge issues, especially when they're distilled into the personal lives of the people who are participating in civilization. I'm sure that you're a love to your next door neighbor. And I'm sure that if they throw a big Trump is God sign on their front porch, your attitude towards them is going to have to be more measured. You probably will never talk about politics. Or if you're a Trump supporter and somebody throws up a Biden is boss <laughs> on their porch, you'll have a similar difficulty. So as a book about to come out in its second form says, we are trying to heal the divide. And you and I both know right now that the only way to do that is with love. That is very true. I mean, at some point you have to reach across the aisle, so to speak, and try to understand somebody else's point of view, even if it's different from yours. Um, because when you put up those walls, like you said, if you put a big sign on your front door that says, this is how I believe, then you're basically um, putting a wall up between you and people who don't believe the same way that you do. And so at some point you have to all come together and try to understand and meet in the middle. And that just hasn't been happening anytime recently. So we can only keep our fingers crossed that yeah. um, we as a society can start to come together. And maybe music is as a way to help bridge some of those gaps. I mean, you look back at the 60s and the 60s really, you know, brought a lot of people together, together through music. And um, maybe music has that healing power now. And we're gonna talk about Faz now and then in just a couple of seconds. How did you come up with the name Faz and what does that mean exactly? <laughs> That's a lovely story. Uh, I Actually, it's in the liner notes of the album. Peter, Paul, and Mary, because in the late 60s, were, along with the Dave Brubeck Quartet, probably the hottest acts on college campuses. We toured together. We did a couple of uh, towns together. And the Brubeck Quartet had a capacity to uh, address classical forms and, and improvise within those classical forms. One of the songs that Peter, Mary, and I did was written by Tom Glazer, interestingly enough, who wrote On Top of Spaghetti. But he did a, he rewrote a St. Matthew's Passion melody to because all men are brothers, wherever men may be, one union 
shall unite us. Anyway, perfect tune for the Brubeck uh, group. And we decided if we're going to be on tour together, let's do a song together. Okay, that's all prelude to setting up Paul Desmond, the somewhat acerbic, incredibly talented alto saxophonist, being forced to introduce three folkies. Now, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if it runs across the, the board for jazz musicians, but I think jazz musicians as a rule who have such a command of their instrument and uh, of music in general tend to view the simplicity of folk music, you know, the, the two or three chords and let's all sing Kumbaya, Malor, Kumbaya, with, if not disdain, at least with a certain reserve. So Desmond is forced into the situation where he's got to introduce to a large crowd standing in front of him uh, three people that are going to come up and sing with a quartet. And he says, we're going to bring up some people who do folk music. Uh, I don't know whether we should call it faz or joke. And we all knew which one he would have preferred. <laughs> but, but the term faz stayed with me, particularly because I am drawn, as most people who have followed Peter, Paul, and Mary for any length of time know, to what I affectionately refer to as color chords. I just... As a matter of fact, let me do it right here. You know, this is so great of me, gosh, to be able to have a hands-on experience. Oh, this, this, is, is, this, is, this is a treat for me, so. Well, this is an A chord. La, 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 la. Now, it's smoky, jazz, mysterious cousin, the A seventh chord. Can you hear the difference? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, jazz uses many times alternative chords to explore the emotional depths of material. I used to do it all the time. And like it says in the liner notes, I was backstage tuning with Peter for something and he reached over and touched my arm and said, no, no, you don't play a major seventh in a Woody Guthrie tune. <laughs> <laughs> he and said, what, Noel, you're complicating this too much. <laughs> well, what it brought to mind is that there are some songs that are probably, you know, you should make judicious use of major sevenths on alternative chords. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely the argument for the, you know, three chords in a cloud of dust and the sing along like you're <laughs> like you're saying. And then, um, and then those beautiful songs where you have those jazz chords. And, and there were 20 songs on this album. Did you write them all over the last couple of years, or were they a no, uh, no. compilation? Uh, no, they're all new songs mm -hmm. uh, for me, uh, with the exception of maybe the last uh, six, which I've put into a little category called the archives, which are previously unreleased uh, versions of tunes that people may or may not know about. Some of them involving a Kodo, live performances in Japan. Um, this, I, I probably have written half of the tunes uh, on the album, but the other half I've actually act, acted as a curator. Uh, one of them is, I said, Randy Stonehill, uh, a really an interestingly heartful story uh, called Leonard's Toaster. 
there's a, a song by Willie Nile and his uh, Frankie Lee called Under This Roof that I borrowed. Uh, and I, there's a ukulele player by the name of Jim Beloff who wrote a song about Charles Ives. A lot of people don't know who Charles Ives is slash was, but he was a man who sold insurance. And then on weekends, he was a composer. And he's only, I would say in the past oh, 50 years, begun to be recognized for the brilliant composer that he was. But how many of us, particularly in this pandemic era, have lived at least two lives, you know? What's, sure. What do they call it? The side hustle. Don't they call it the side hustle? And it can be done. So this song beautifully nails that. Um, yeah, and I got to work with some really great musicians too. I mean, you know, uh, Paul Winter uh, from the Paul Winter Consort, who I've known and even have produced albums for in the past. Paul Sullivan, uh, brilliant pianist. Uh, Gene Friesen, uh, cello player, uh, world-class folks. And all of this, of course, done pandemically, you know. Uh, send them the track, uh, they play to it. Yeah, that works. No, this doesn't work. Uh, can you do it again with this? There was very little of that with the, with the upscale musicians that I referred to. Actually, got to tell you, the pandemic really worked in my favor because as I approached my 85th birthday, my Congratulations. Favorite, uh, yeah, well, I, I got a ways to go till I approach it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even in the landing pattern yet, but... But anyway, I'm in my mid-80s, and the synapse between my brain and my fingers doesn't always work. And I hate to tie up more talented musicians in a studio circumstance where they're sitting around while I'm fumbling or only getting part of the tune right. So the pandemic worked in my favor because I was able to record my pieces. If, it didn't, if I got to a place where I made a mistake, I spliced to another part where I didn't make a mistake. So what they got eventually was a pretty good performance. The album, the album came together really well. I even tried some contemporary uh, zooming, you know, putting it uh, the studio. <laughs> but it was four old white guys standing around a speaker pointing at each other. So <laughs> It came pretty, the how-to kind of disappeared under all of that uh, weight. So will you be touring for this album? No, no. I'm, I might do some local performances. I mean, I have some favorite places like uh, McCabe's in Los Angeles or Freight and Salvage up in uh, San Francisco area. I might do the Rubicon Theater here. I'll do a couple of shows in Maine when I get back there uh, in June or July. But mostly... Do you ever hear the expression, old folk singers never die, they just do benefits? Oh, no. <laughs> Paraphrase of Douglas MacArthur, I think, but, but that's mostly what I think what I'll be doing. I'll be doing appearance, some appearances uh, because I do love the, I love the synergy that comes from an audience and a song and a performer, but not enough to... Uh, uh, leave my charming wife and uh, go out on the road like I used to. Well, every year we go to Maine in the summer for a couple of weeks ah. to, uh, it's an area called Casco, Maine. It's uh, about 45 minutes in from Portland and 
we always spend a couple of days in Portland and then we head to this little pond out there yeah. and escape the Memphis heat. It's just beautiful up there in Maine. It is. We're about an hour and a half further north than that uh, in the little town called Blue Hill, which is quite, quite lovely. And right on, and that's right on the ocean. So we get our ocean in the uh, for seven months out of the year, and then we get our simplicity of urban uh, accessibility uh, the other five months. Well, before we go, I wanted to mention music to life because uh, uh, that's been a, a, a nonprofit that you started. Tell me a little bit about that. Music to Life has evolved amazingly in the beginning, uh, in the beginning being, let's say, when the royalty started coming in for the wedding song. And I had already disavowed the ownership of those royalties. Uh, they went into a foundation called Public Domain. Out of that Public Domain Foundation, uh, my daughter and I, after a conversation wanting to support young singer-songwriters of messages, uh, began to support a, uh, a, con a songwriting contest in Kerrville at the Kerrville Folk Festival in Texas. And we did that for about 10 years, put out CDs with the winners, uh, music. But Liz is uh, corporately minded and has a futurist point of view about the importance of music of social change. And, and in encountering the musicians who produce it, discovered that they really want to take the music even further than that, move into their communities so that they're not just singing at a rubber chicken dinner to raise a couple of dollars, but they are in fact uh, working with the homeless. Uh, now, how, do, how does a songwriter work with the homeless? Well, they sit in a circle, they write, they hear their grievances, they encourage them to put their grievances into poetry or music, and then they turn that music into a concert on the street. Uh, it brings a sense of worth to the participants. It brings a sense of awareness to the community. And so Music to Life has become uh, kind of a mentorship now in placing uh, singer-songwriters all over the United States in giving them financial as well as teaching uh, to, be, to, to better work their craft and to be more available for their communities. Well, that's amazing and it sounds like a wonderful cause and hopefully people will know more about it and be able to become involved with that. Um, and of course, uh, they need to go out and get a copy of your new album, Faz, now and then. And um, I really enjoyed talking to you, Noel. I really appreciate you stopping by and talking about the new album, but a little bit about your life too. Yeah. And um, hopefully you'll come through Memphis sometime. I hope so. I, I don't do as much traveling as I used to. A lot of it is done with my fingers on the keyboard. Speaking of which, if you go to the noelpaulstuckey.com website, you have a chance to get a pre-release version of the album, which uh, also opens the archives to some other I don't, kind of an adventure. I've just started a new website. Uh, it's not like I'm old to the ways of the internet, but I am new to the ways of this open sourcing. <laughs> well, thank you again. And um, it was yep. really a pleasure talking to you. And uh, we'll see you down the road, as they say. <laughs> I hope so, Amy. Bless you. And uh, keep the fiddle going. I look forward to hearing something from you and your husband one of these days. Perfect. Thank you.
You bet. Bye. All righty, folks, that's a wrap for this edition of Insights. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Noel Paul Stuckey about his lifelong journey as a musician, his upcoming album, Faz Now and Then, which you can pre-order now, by the way, and a ton of fun stories and tidbits from over the decades about the folk music movement, seeing and knowing Bob Dylan early on, and that Puff the Magic Dragon wasn't about drugs, but about love. A lot of folks are going to have a tough time accepting that one. We encourage you to visit noelpaulstuckey.com to learn more, and don't forget to share today's show with your friends. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today. And we hope to see you again real soon, right here on Insights. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at IntoHistory.com.